Dear friends, welcome to this edition of uh, Africa No, uh, Africa Now, the the monthly series of uh, of seminars uh, hosted by the Norwegian Council uh, for Africa. Each month we uh, come together at Kulturhuset and focus on particular. Uh, topics or particular countries uh, that are of uh, interest for, for the Norwegian Council for Africa and uh, we hope and we believe for many uh, others, uh, others. Now, today's edition of uh, Africa Now, Africa No, is on, on the question of whether or not the continent uh, is in an economic uh, sense rising or reeling. Um, in order to, for you to, to follow <laughs> the series of seminars uh, and to sort of not only uh, enjoy this discussion that we will have today, um, please uh, check out Fellesrode for Africa, the Norwegian Council for Africa on Facebook. Like the page and uh, subscribe to, to, uh, uh, to our events in that way, you'll always be updated whenever we have a, a new seminar on different topics, different countries. Uh, and not least, Fellows uh, for Africa would like to welcome anyone to become a member of the organization and to follow and, and support our work. Uh, now, in order to look into this, uh, this question of whether or not the continent uh, economically speaking, is rising or reeling. Um, we have invited Morten Jadven, uh, currently at the uh, Norwegian University for Life uh, uh, Sciences, uh, famous for uh, his books on poor numbers uh, in Africa and, and uh, Africa, why economists get it wrong. Um, he... Um, yeah, I mean, you, you we'll get into your your uh, your thesis and and uh, this after uh, in a while, um, and not least, Grivet Shelva, uh, contributor at Africa as a country for uh, in, in their their blog uh, collective on economics, uh, and to moderate this discussion on Africa rising or reeling, uh, we have Ingrid Solpesta uh, of Fremtiden Våre Hender and formerly of the Norwegian Council uh, uh, for Africa. This uh, seminar will be recorded and subject to no technical different, uh, difficulties, we'll have uh, a podcast afterwards. We are here today to talk about, uh, as it said in the Facebook invite, the development of the African continent and Western economists' misunderstandings, nothing less. So it's like quite a broad topic. So we're starting out here, yeah? Um, and then kind of to cater to the nerds here today, I can all assure you that we will kind of, we will get the chance to dig into some really juicy statistics. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I hope some of you are as well. Uh, and I hope you're ready to cater for us. Wonderful. Uh, but first of all, let me kind of all... Let's all, all have a look at, over there at those two economist front pages that are shown there. Some of you know these, have seen these before. Um, the one to the left, 
uh, where the title is The Hopeless Continent, and there's a photo of a child soldier. It's from Economist in the year of 2000, right? Yeah. I'm looking at Grieve here, yeah. Um, year 2000. 11 years later, you have the, uh, the cover on the right. As you see, it's a completely different story being told. Suddenly, it's Africa rising. And uh, these two front pages are often used. They're very popular to use when one is to, someone is to describe what they mean with uh, the African rising paradigm. However, maybe the truth is not that black and white. Um, or what do you think, my dear friends? That's something I would like to get into with you. But first of all, just to kind of help us ease, ease into the talk, uh, I wonder if you can help us with defining what is this Africa rising narrative that we see here on the front page of economists? Grievechava, you can start perhaps. Oh, okay, so I get to go first. That's, oh, yes, that's, please. That's very unfair. You know, <laughs> very unfair. Okay, no, it's just lovely to be here. Um, I'm still jet lagged, so I will blame my lack of coherence on my jet lag, yeah? Thanks, Johan, for having me here. Thanks, Hibo, for everything you've done to get me here. Um, okay, so, uh, so, so what the question is, what is this Africa rising narrative, yeah, right? What is it really? Okay, so I mean, the starting point is, so when the, when the economist is saying, as I understand it, when the economist is saying is Africa rising, what are they looking at? So my suspicion is that they're looking at GDP numbers, GDP growth rate numbers, right? So from that point of view, from their perspective, and given what I think is their definition of Africa rising, so they look at GDP growth rates, and uh, what you see there is a story of from 1960, so Morton has written about this quite eloquently. If you look at uh, African GDP data, it starts in 1960, uh, not because that's when African economies were born. I mean, they've existed for millennia, right? But that's just because that's when the data started to be collected. So if you look at GDP data from 1960 up to about 1975, 1977, and then uh, you forgive me here, so I will sort of generalize and make this Africa is a country problem. So if you just look at Africa in general, you see very healthy growth, right? So very healthy growth all the way up until 1977, 1978. And then the crisis comes in the 80s, right? So then you have lack of growth, in some cases negative growth, and then starting about 1995, 96, or somewhere thereabouts, uh, it starts to grow again, and positively so, right? So from that point of view, the economist, I think, is looking at these numbers, and then that's their definition of sort of Africa rising, and they're saying, okay, we see positive GDP growth rate, uh, yeah, so that's, therefore, there's something happening, Africa is rising, right? So this is how I understand, or this is what I guess is going on in their heads when they when they're sort of talking about this mm. stuff, yeah. Uh, Morten Jarvin, is that how you understand the narrative as well? Yeah, um, I could go on and on a little bit about this because I think uh, that's chiefly what my latest book is about. Uh, and what I try to do in the book is to show how both of these front pages are fundamentally wrong. And I think also one of the conclusions of the book is that it is distinctly unfortunate and also probably stands opposed to, to a good objective evaluation and policy advice that we seem to always be stuck between tragedies and miracles. So it's not, we're always on, on the extreme. And, and, and that's one of the hard parts. I mean, when I started writing my uh, PhD thesis uh, at the uh, London School of Economics uh, 10 years ago, then, uh, well, then I was taking issue 
with the first front page. And, mm. uh, and one of the things I was then, uh, I thought that was probably just some misunderstanding you had in the popular news media, some kind of hype. But then I started looking at the academic literature and I saw that they were only focused on explaining this one thing, that why is Africa chronically failed? Uh, why is there is no growth? And they were looking for, one thing is to read the, the editorial that belonged to this front page. One of the things was that they, have this, they asked, and that's quite a sinister language use, asking, does Africa have a character flaw that keeps it incapable of development? That's what they, they asked at that point. And I was taking from impetus from the research paradigm at the time, was looking for exactly that. What, what was fundamentally wrong with these countries? And then we have the, the other front page where you had the, the 180 degrees turnaround where they suddenly changed their way. And that's, you know, so I think the Africa rising uh, got so wrong precisely because they got it so wrong the first time. And then by drawing down to make up for a first wrong, then in doing the second wrong, they got it even worse. I used, you know, there was a, a newspaper in South, South Africa who asked, uh, you know, is it, is it maybe the economist that has a character flaw <laughs> that makes them incapable of uh, consistent uh, judgment? And I think that's, that's what we're dealing with. Of course, and um, you know, I support as well the, what Grieve said about it's also partly looking too closely on the GDP numbers and not actually doing an analysis, a deep analysis. Mm. So let's uh, let's now start to dig a bit deeper into this issue. Uh, if we if we um, if you all have an understanding of what this Africa rising uh, paradigm or narrative is, which started appearing five, six, seven years ago, more or less, um, what would be your main criticism of of that narrative? Okay, um, okay so. So I, I come or from the... It, or, sorry, to, you should say it another way. Is Africa rising? Okay, so <laughs> if you're the economist and you're just looking at GDP numbers, you'd say yes, mm. right? If you're, but, but then we have sort of have to think about what do we really mean when we say a region or a country is rising, right? So I come from, I come from a developing country. Mm. I don't know, I think the World Bank changed the polit politically correct terminology. I don't know what it is now, but they said it used to be third world used to be, I don't know what it was, less developing, and then it, they said developing, and now they say you can't say that anymore. I and don't know what it is now. And the name yeah. of the country you're from? I'm from Zambia. It's from Zambia. Okay, so, yeah. all right, so I come from a country that's developing country, right? Mm. And then, so when somebody says to me, Zambia is rising, what, what do I want to see, right? What do I want to see when somebody says Zambia is rising? What I want to see is, I want to see some sense of what, if you've got a model of how societies or economies rise, you see some sense of structural transformation, right? So I want to see, uh, an economy that stops to rely on agriculture in some ways, because why, why agriculture is great, we get food from it, but also it turns out uh, the jobs there tend to not pay well, right? So you can't really dent poverty, sort of just solely based on agriculture. So I want to see an economy that structurally transforms from relying on agriculture to relying more on manufacturing, because, uh, because that's been the lesson of history. So country, societies that, or countries or regions that have risen have done this structural transformation. You move away from relying on agriculture, you move away from relying on commodities, you know, exporting cocoa, raw cocoa, exporting copper, exporting oil, to exporting like high value sort of uh, products. I also want to see uh, reductions, drastic reductions in unemployment, right? So. Africa has been rising according to the economists, but when I look at Zambia, when I look at a set, a, a set of countries in Africa, I don't see dents on unemployment. I don't see dents on poverty. I don't see this structural transformation because when you say a, a country has risen, what you're really saying is that it's now on a path to self-sustaining growth. 
You're talking about, for instance, the South Korean miracle. You're talking about Japan, what happened in Japan. You're talking about what's happening, in, what's been happening before our eyes in China. You're talking about what happened uh, to the US and uh, Great Britain uh, 200 years ago and so on and so forth. So I think that's what I, I think uh, as a Zambian, I want, when somebody says Zambia has risen, I want to see these things mm. happening. Right. Mm. Okay. So that's really how I think we should think about country or region rising mm. so in terms of these kinds of things. Martin. Yeah, I think um, to answer your question, I think, I don't think Africa rising was the correct nomer. Um, I argue in my research that we should think about growth as recurring. Uh, and uh, fundamentally, we've been approaching growth ahistorically. So we've been blind to the fact that growth is nothing new. Uh, when people said that growth was chronically failed in sub-Saharan Africa, they were wrong. Uh, and that's why they are too surprised now. And that's also why we are also uh, economists have given us a toolbox where, where, where there is no lessons to be had from pre pre uh, previous periods of, of growth and then decline. And another thing, you know, in order to, that we should look at beyond growth, we could also look on the numbers that support the growth narrative in itself. Indeed, that's what my first book was about, Poor Numbers, <laughs> where, where, which is about exactly that, how, how uh, little we know based on numbers from this region. And it was quite interesting when I, when I published Poor Numbers in 2013, the book was reviewed in the Financial Times, and then uh, uh, under, the, I think, the title, Africa Counts the Cost of Its Miscalculations, to which then the chief economist at the African Development Bank, Nkube, uh, wrote back into the Financial Times to, to respond to the book review and said that, no, 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 Morton German is completely wrong. Africa is rising. Come and see for yourselves. And this had its round on Twitter and so forth, and then until some clever guy in Ghana responded, millions are already here, and we see nothing. And so I think that already there was uh, uh, already at its infancy this Africa rising uh, narrative was hard to keep up. Uh, they also published this uh, um, this report about the, the rising middle class in which it was claimed that 250 million Africans were now middle class because they had more than two dollars a day and so forth like that. And that again was a way of, of kind of keeping it up. And, and we might talk about that a little bit later about what, what were the consequences of this. But I think a very striking thing that happened during this time was Nestle, for instance, announced that they were going to start offices in many, I don't know, 10, 15 countries at some point at the height of this Africa rising narrative. And then two years later, come out and said, well, we got the numbers wrong. Uh, we're actually going to withdraw. And in a sense, that's exactly what you don't want to do. That's what you don't want to have miracles and then tragedies because that's what the, so there is self-fulfilling prophecies in here. And, uh, and there is some adverse selection as well. If you, people go around thinking that 12% is the new normal, then they're going to be disappointed pretty soon. So what you're saying is that um, um, misperceptions or misunderstanding by economists or analysts is it actually has policy implications, real policy implications for, for real people. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, you're also pointing to your research, which has, uh, in, in where, where you've wrote, written a lot about um, that the numbers that are behind many of these statistics are flawed and also that many economists um, are, getting, um, are getting things wrong when looking at Africa. The last, your last book is called Why Economists Get It Wrong. Mm. Um, so could you, could, you, could you please talk a bit about that? What is it really that economists are getting wrong about, Afri um, about African countries? 
Well, one thing we get wrong is how to approach the numbers. So to take one story, go to Nigeria in uh, um, Sunday, I think maybe Sunday 7th April, a Sunday afternoon in Abuja in Nigeria. Then Yemi Kale stepped up to the podium and made an announcement. Who's and was this? Just for those who are Yemi Kale was then, uh, and still is, uh, the head of statistics in, in Nigeria. Yeah. And he announced new GDP numbers. He announced that they have been um, estimating GDP on uh, old data, on old methods, and now they had new data, new methods. And by the time uh, Yemi Kale was done with his speech that Sunday afternoon, uh, uh, Nigerian GDP increased 89%. By the time he had finished his uh, announcement that Sunday, uh, sub-Saharan African GDP increased 20%. Um, after that announcement, we actually got added the, the, the total value equivalent to 58 Malawis into the, uh, to the Nigerian economy, which was previously unaccounted for. So that means that if you're studying sub-Saharan African economies, whether it's Zambia or Nigeria, if you're studying them on a great distance, with downloaded data, with, uh, without time to, to ascertain whether it is actually 12 or 5 or so forth. Did they, do they have an informal sector survey? Did they have a poverty survey? When did they have it? Are they comparable and so forth? You end up re reporting hype and researching hype and, and reproducing hype instead of actually critically engaging with the numbers themselves. So this is a part of what the economists have gotten wrong, is how to approach the numbers, dealing with these things as facts, which in, I talk about in my book at great length, is that we need, need to think about them as social, socially and politically produced numbers, and not, not facts grabbed from the thin air. Could you tell us, a Zambian economist, what are you thinking when you're listening to Morten? No, I, I think he's got, uh, he's on the money when he talks about uh, uh, pretty much sort of, uh, you know, there, ha there has to be some skepticism in the way we consume some of this statistical data that's coming from African countries. And understandably so, uh, right? Understandably so, because obviously there are capacity constraints, uh, there are funding constraints. I mean, obviously when we had the economic crisis in the 80s, uh, certain decisions had to be made in terms of al allocating money. So one of the places, one of the entities that suffered were statistical offices, right? Uh, I, I mean, I've got a couple of friends, uh, for instance, at the Central Statistical Office in, in Lusaka, Zambia, and they're trying their best, given the constraints, right? They want to do their job, but, you know, you don't have funding. It's pretty difficult to do it. Um, so the, uh, the, the one thing I just add to what Morton is saying, so Morton is saying be very careful when you consume uh, this data as you are doing your research. I think another thing that is worth talking about is also in terms of uh, so there's a research question, right? So there's a standard, re there's a research question, the research question is ABCD. So the thing I have issue with is that the research questions tend to be the stuff that I don't think is relevant for, for me as a, as a Zambian policymaker, right? Mm. So, right, so the flavor of the month in the US or in, in, in Great Britain, or I don't know, maybe in Sweden at the Stockholm School of Economics, that becomes this research question in Zambia, right? So. Let's see, I don't know what thing, whatever is obsessing people in, in the US, I don't know what the issue might be, but all of a sudden, this becomes a research question that we should also, we should also ask in Zambia. Zambian policymakers might be interested in different things. Zambian academics are also interested in different things. I mean, there's an obsession with how do we industrialize? How do we transform from an agricultural-based economy into a manufacturing-based economy? And you never see, if you, if you pick up the standard literature and development economics today, you hardly see these types of questions being asked you will see very narrow questions being asked. For instance, if we give mosquito, mosquito nets to Zambians in a village X, what mm -hmm. happens? You know, these things are important. 
but they're not going to help us rise. They're not going to have a dent on poverty. They're not going to have a dent on unemployment, right? So that's the thing. So I think just adding to what he's saying, my own sort of my own addition to the important work he's done is to say the the other problem is just the type of research questions that are being asked. You know, they're not the ones that we they're not asking the questions that I think we want asked. Exactly for purposes of development. Yeah. I think I think you've uh, written somewhere that, um, and now I'm I'm curious if we're going to get it right, <laughs> but I hope so. Yeah. No, I think I think you've you've written somewhere that um, the research is following the money and sometimes the donor money, uh, or that uh, what is being researched on is um, sometimes on the request of, for instance, on for instance, uh, or for instance, big aid um, agencies. Is that yeah? Does that sound right? Uh, uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's pretty much big part of the story. I mean, so research is mostly funded by the governments or donor donor entities, and uh, yeah, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, uh, they are fads, they are fashions in research, right? So it'll be a fashionable thing. The fashionable thing might be just like the fashionable thing might be to wear skinny jeans in research. The fashionable thing might be, you know, uh, governance yeah. or institutions or corruption. Or, uh, or conflict, war, disease, whatever the fashionable thing is. And uh, I mean, like, uh, if you think about the amounts of money involved in research, there's billions and mi millions and maybe even billions of dollars. If you're a researcher, what do you do? I mean, I, I want to I write on industrialization, but God, no one is funding it. Yeah. What do I do? Yeah. So I write, I write on disease or yeah. war or conflict. Or, yeah. Which is fun, uh, funded. Yeah. Um, to, to get a bit back to uh, Martin Yarvin's literature here, this again is the last book that you wrote. Um, and uh, uh, Griv, you have said that, well, you admire Martin's work, but you would actually, you actually think that the title of this book is wrong. So what, what do you think should be the title of the book and why? Morton and I had an internal Twitter fight about this. No, we didn't. Because <laughs> <laughs> direct messaging each other in, uh, in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, okay, so, I mean, it's a, otherwise this is an incredibly important contribution to the debate. A very useful book. Uh, I mean, I learned a lot, by the way, reading the book. And especially the references to some of the literature I had not encountered before. I mean, you had this, he had this really nice, he, he references uh, an anthropologist or an ethnographer, if I'm not Mike McGavin. So Mike McGavin wrote a, a review of Paul Collier's book, The Bottom Billion, in 2001. And uh, so Mike McGavin is really talking about the ethnographic approach of economists, especially Western economists when they're writing about Africa. They arrive at the airport, right? Oh, and this is the way the research questions are formed. They arrive at the airport, driven, being driven to the hotel. They ask the driver, so what, how are things like in Zambia here? <laughs> and driver says, oh, you know... Uh, corruption is really killing us. Oh, you know, I mean, people just, the, the taxi drivers just say stuff, right? I mean, yeah, whatever. I mean, I'm just a uh, visitor. I'm going to tell him stuff. And then, yeah, voila, research question. I'm going to write yeah. about corruption. And then maybe later on in the day when he's having a drink by the bar in the hotel, the barman also tells him another story. Ah, research question revised, to be more precise, whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, so come to your question. I mean, when I read Morton's book, I realized he was mostly criticizing uh, economists in the US or in Canada or in Western Europe, right? That those were the people he was criticizing. So it occurred to me to say, ah, maybe, uh, maybe Morton should have titled his book, Why Western Economists Get It Wrong. So why yeah. Western economists yeah. and not why economists? Yeah, why no, and not why, I, well, I, I, maybe I also get it wrong, but I, 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 but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I think he should have perhaps been more precise and said why Western economists get it wrong. Yeah. 
So you're thinking that uh, he is ignoring some African economists? No, not necessarily. Actually, uh, uniquely, Morton is unique as mm. a northern economist in engaging with, uh, uh, with African economists. I mean, one of his, I presume maybe one of your intellectual heroes is Tandikam Kandawiri, mm. uh, a very prominent Malawian economist who uh, has written quite He's written quite eloquently and uh, has produced a lot of work about this type of stuff, critical way. So, uh, yeah, so I mean, he's not ignoring Western economists, certainly. He's in conversation with Western economists, with, with, sorry, with African economists, yeah. but he's critiquing. His critique is really, he really critiques the stars of the Western uh, pantheon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wh what do you say to that, uh, Martin Alvin? Do you agree that the title should be slightly altered? Yeah, I, I don't know why. I, um, maybe that could be a title for someone else. For me, it might be, it might sit a bit uneasily, but uh, I think uh, it, the point is well made. It's a lot about, and uh, that's, you know, when I do African studies, which I sometimes do, sometimes I'm an economist, sometimes I'm an economic historian, sometimes a political scientist, and other times I do African studies. And then I, what I write about is how Africa or African countries and economies are portrayed in the West. So in a sense, uh, I'm talking about not how Zambian economists have misunderstood their own economy, <laughs> but rather how Northern American and uh, how economics and Africa is studied and, uh, on the North American and Western uh, university. That's what it's all about. It's where the orthodoxy comes from, where mainstream comes from. But I'm reminded of... Uh, this uh, Dudley Sears, one of the pioneers in economic development, once asked, uh, had a very interesting speech, where he, which was the title was, uh, Why do visiting economists fail? I went into, you know, the misunderstandings that went along. So this idea is not... So but I actually prefer the, the 1984 uh, revisiting of that uh, essay by Paul Streeton, where he said, uh, Why do failed economists visit? Which, <laughs> is, a, <laughs> which is a better one. Yeah. Uh, but so, in, and I think we're into here. It's, it's a little bit. Uh, I think something we should be really wary about. It comes back to 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 the tools, the questions, and so forth like that. Um, there is, uh, you know, there is a high premium on, on expertise, and uh, many people, ex many times, expertise is not judged correctly and and many times bad advice is given, and very expensive bad advice is given as well. And not only that, well, I mean, I, I think it's very unfortunate. I think so. I think the debate should continue like that. And I think that's also what Tandika Makanda-Wira as well has emphasized. One of the problems we ne really need to address is the strength and the position of African intellectuals and universities in, in, in you know, deciding what is important questions to study. So even, even and the donors and the knowledge production is funded from, from, very often funded from abroad. So when I look at statistical offices, for instance, you can go to a library and look at the collections. In the 60s and 70s, you'll see industrial services, you'll see labor service and so forth. 70s and 80s is completely missing because they're completely missing. And then in the 90s, we get poverty reduction. And now if you want statistics on anything, it better be clean water or or uh, child mortality and uh, maternal mortality, because that is the statistic that is being funded. On the economic side of things as well, there's been, as I talked about, when everyone was trying to figure out why, why economies, African economies was permanently failed, then that's what they researched. So that we, we do see, as, even as late, and that's worth reminding ourselves, even as late as in 2007, Paul Collier writes this book, The Bottom Billion. 
you know, and it's saying that this is the, the, the crucial question must be, why are these countries chronically failed while they've never seen any growth? Mm -hmm. Disregarding that the economies had been growing for a decade while he was writing the book, they were, grow you know, they were growing while he was writing the book, and, they were, and some of them are, most of them are growing yeah. still. They're growing a bit slower so than maybe some of us led us to believe. Mm -hmm. Ethiopia never grew at 12%, now it doesn't either. But, uh, and, and, you know, so there, there is that way in which we got expertise delivered in from, from, uh, from outside, uh, which set again and, and set circles of new knowledge deemed relevant. And so I agree with, uh, with grieving that, but uh, exactly changing the title, I won't do. <laughs> that uh, remains. Why economists get it wrong? That's what I came here to, to, to convince <laughs> no, you, no. Morton, to convince you to change the title. All the way from Boston. Yeah. Um, I would like to get a bit back to um, uh, to, to the to the history, or I would like to go a bit further back I back in history. Um, I think, well, at least uh, me, I, I was born in the 80s, and I remember growing up with the paradigm on on the left there, really, on TV. And I think many of you people here in the audience can can recognize that the how um, how the African continent was portrayed through our media. In the in the 90s, in in in, in particular, as a grim and hopeless continent, um, this was a time of band-aid and so and so so forth. Um, uh, and I and I, I would I would like to ask you because you're arguing, Martin Edwin, that uh, the economists they got it wrong in the 80s and the 90s as well, or that there actually was growth after independence for. Uh, most African countries, but that the economists, they didn't really see it. Well, I think where things started to go quite wrong uh, was in the late 80s into the 90s. Yeah. So we're in a difficult period. We're in the, the black uh, cover here where everything is hopeless. And we're in a period in which the IMF and the World Bank had... Uh, very powerful sway in terms of uh, influence on policy, in terms of funding uh, almost all research uh, during this time, uh, African universities failing and so forth. It was a difficult time and, and we had also a period in which uh, we had a very, uh, a very uh, uh, difficult time for heterodox approaches to economics as well. So very little leeway intellectually as well. So one way of thinking is what one way mean. of thinking. Yeah. So we got so I, what was going on was that we knew, we, we know the diagnosis being made that the the, the, the external conditions, uh, uh, raw prices and debt and so forth like that was being downplayed, whereas the fault for economic crisis was was being put on African policymakers and the types of policies and the development paradigms and even industrialization efforts and and so forth like that. So it was squarely being laid on, on that. And then since that, in the decades after, we have had a period in which um, IMF and the World Bank has been you know, struggling very hard to prove that they got it right after all. Uh, and it, although structural adjustment, the liberalization packages never worked, yeah. uh, they never worked and they never worked and they try introducing them. On one side, the IMF and the World Bank says, it's not working properly because you're imp not implementing it properly. Yeah. Uh, while the other side would say, well, these, um, these recipes you're giving us are no good. They're based on uh, economic textbook. They're not based on the knowledge about how the currency market works in Zambia. It's based on a textbook example of how we would wish it to work if it was a different economy. And so, so and in all kinds of fields and spheres. And so economists have been very, very eager to show, you know, 
retrospectively prove that they were wrong, that they were right. So Paul Collier and et al. were pr proving in the 90s and 2000s that you know it was good policy, and it was the 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 lack of state intervention that was needed. Eventually, you know, when growth came back again and we got the Africa Rising front page, then, you know, th there was even then papers coming in from the World Bank and saying, look, now the policies are working. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it would have, it's far-fetched to say how a policy package takes 20 years to work. But uh, what we, we, we seem to be the more closing-lying reason is, again, that, you know, these economies were externally dependent and they remain so. And even what I, I'm more quite worried about here today, we talked about debt as well in the, the bond to happen uh, report, um, uh, in which we see that, you know, which I write about in the book as well. Yes, African economies have been externally dependent. Yes, there has been growth. There has been growth all the time. But because of this very, very severe liberalization package and the withdrawal of the state into do not doing much but guaranteeing for debt recently, um, we're, we're watching states that are even more uh, vulnerable to a downturn, which we might be seeing at the, at the moment, and that's a bit worrying. Hmm. You tell about what comment? No, I mean, I think Morten has covered everything, really. Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing for me to comment on. Mm -hmm. But you, uh, you, have, you have written that um, um, one mistake that uh, economists are doing is that they're, uh, they're studying, when they're studying Tanzania, they're criticizing it for not being Sweden. What do you mean by that? So that's really Morton's point. So I think you, the point you make is that the subtraction approach to studying development, right? Mm. So I mean, I get this all the time, and it's one of the most infuriating things. When I meet a Swede, the Swede, the Swede will say to me, why can Zambia, be, well, they won't say why can Zambia be more like Sweden, but see, if, if only Africa could be like, you know, adopt the Swedish policies and all these kind of things, everything would work out. So really, yeah, so that's really this story about, the way I, the way I understand it is, if I had to study Norway, right? If I had to study Norway as a Zambian, I would have to come here with a framework of how I think Norway works, mm. right? It's a very, this so, social reality is very complex. So I have to come here with a framework to really simplify Norway so that I can study it and write a paper quickly and publish it, right? Yeah, so, uh, so precisely so, well, so if you're a northern economist and you're trying to study Zambia and you haven't spent time there, as much time as you might need to really properly understand the situation and the society, yeah, I mean, I'll study Zambia from the point of view of how America works, right? So, I mean, we do this all the time when we travel, right? We always say, why can they do things like the way they, like, this place is strange. Why don't they, like, I come here and say, no way is strange. Why uh, is it that, uh, you know, I don't know, what, what, what big fancy Norwegian thing. I said, this thing is not, it's different. It's not like what we do in Zambia. I wish they could do stuff like the way we did in Zambia. They know it would be a great place. Yeah. That's completely missing the point, right? Societies are unique, very complex and contextual. So that's pretty what, what this want to make Tanzania like Sweden approach. I understand it as Tanzania is complex. I don't quite get it, but I'm going to study it for the purposes of making, the, uh, making a publication. I'm going to study it in comparison to what I know. So I go to Tanzania with a very simplified framework. I mean, one thing that I was going to just say, I mean, so one of the things that, for instance, when we think about Africa from this place, we've got certain stereotypes in our heads, right? Corruption, war, disease. And the reason why we have those stereotypes in our heads is that, I mean, social reality is complex. So when I think about a place like Zambia, I've never really been there. I want to say something about it. I'm going to have a framework, right? So I think in political science for a long time, it was this, neo-patrimonial neo type of approach which says, look, uh, there, there's, all this, there's all this corruption, there's all this corruption that interacts with ethnicity, there's all this 
patronage systems, uh, African politicians or African civil servants never really do things for the greater good. They're just corrupt. Mm. Or they just want to steal all the time. Well, my dad was a civil servant. I, 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 never, I never saw him steal. He was trying to do the best he could, given his constraints. And, this is, and I, I'm told this all the time. People will say to me in Boston, they'll say to me, you know, Grieve, you're a good guy. You should join uh, politics in Zambia. Or you should be minister of finance. What they're really trying to say to me is that yeah. Africa's got this neo-patrimony. <laughs> Africa is this, the, my framework of Africa is everybody's evil. Yeah. But I met this guy. It seems like a good guy, <laughs> so he could, you know. So really, that's uh, that's that's so that's the really idea. That, that's what's going on. I mean, it's. I don't think uh, these econom these econ these economists are good people. Some of my best friends are economists. That's the expression. Yeah, but uh, but the, 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 the point is that they are studying something that is really complex, and they have no time to really immerse themselves and understand that kind of society. And what you do in those kinds of scenarios, you re you know, you have to simplify social reality. And unfortunately, more, more, more often than not, especially if you're not familiar, you will simplify it wrongly. That's really the story. Uh, Grieve, you, you have also said that you believe that economics should be taught differently at African universities. Well, uh, well Why? I, I, I mean, so I'm not saying, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't think I'm, um, I don't think there's an African economics, oh. right? I, I, I think there's economics. Right, so there's economics, there's a sort of a standard way of thinking about the economy, but then this standard way of thinking about the economy has to be contextualized. So, for instance, when I learned at the University of Zambia, when I, I was doing my undergraduate degree, I mean, I, I learned, I was being taught the stuff that the lecturers there thought was important for me as a Zambian economist. Right, so there's economics, I can have a discussion with Morton about standard principles, we can have a discussion as economists, but I think, it has to be contextualized, right? So I mean, exactly. So I mean, I'm sure when students in Norway learn economics, they're learning about the Norwegian economy, the stuff that's really important for the Norwegian economy. So they, they, they're using the standard tools, but the standard tools are sort of contextualized to Norway. Mm. Yeah. Applied. Okay, I would like to open up the floor soon. So please, uh, and if anyone you, uh, one of you have any questions, just um, start uh, preparing. Um, You're pointing somewhere. Yes, you can actually come and line up here by, by Johan, uh, because it would be great if you could speak into the microphone. We need that in, in this, um, this place. But just, I would like to ask both of you one question. Um, you've been talking about misunderstandings of concepts from the side of, of, uh, of uh, economists, um, misframing and, and, and simplifying uh, understanding of, uh, of some very quite a few very different countries, which is Africa. Um, what are the consequences of these misunderstandings? I mean, do they have actually real consequences for real people's real lives? Yeah. You want to start? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. All right. So, uh, of course they do. So, I'll tell you a small story. I was born in the 80s, so which means I started first grade uh, about 1990, 91, I can't remember. Uh, and I went, when I started first grade, the school I went to, was completely devastated in terms of infrastructure. So there were no windows, there were no desks, there were no teachers. Uh, we had to, so the school day was rationed, so I could only be in class for two or three hours because the schools weren't enough. So they had to sort of ration the spaces. So other kids, so I'd go in from eight to 11 or eight to 10, and then I'd go home, and then somebody else, another group of students, uh, pupils would come in and, and so on. So what's that story about? That's really, in some ways, it's a story about sort of structural adjustment. 
and I sort of finished the story. And then I went to the University of Zambia in 2003 as a first-year student. I went to a university which had, didn't have infrastructure, didn't have books, mm. uh, dilapidated lecture theaters. We didn't have computers. What's that story about? That's a story about structural adjustment, right? So, uh, one of the most uh, so in the 80s, using what they called state-of-the-art tools. You hear this all the time. A new study using state-of-the-art tools has found A, B, C, D. State-of-the-art tools in the 80s told us that this, what they call the social return to education. So when you invest in education as a country, there's a, there can be a private return, which is a return to you as the person who's benefiting from the subsidy. So if you get a grant from the, from the Norwegian government to go to university here, you get a private return, which is your salary, right? Uh, and then there's also a social return, which is the return to society, right? Mm. So these clever guys in, uh, in, the was in Washington, they, they ran a bunch of what they call st statistical analysis, and this work showed that the social return for higher education in Africa was lower than the social return of elementary education, right? Actually, so what they were saying is that when you invest in higher education, most of the benefits are, are, are accrued to the individuals. So Grieve gets a bursary to go to the University of Zambia, he mostly enjoys most of the benefits. Whereas if you invest in first grade to seventh grade, the benefits, the private returns are small, but the social returns are large. And people were convinced by these kinds of studies. So the logical implication of that study was to say, stop funding higher education and fund primary education, right? And uh, what was the result of that uh, scenario? Uh, higher education systems in Africa were devastated. In fact, what you see, if you plot, you plot a graph of scientific publications in Africa from say 1970 up until today, what you see is that in the late 80s, all of a sudden there's a big drop, there's a big discontinuity. Publications just stop. And we're not surprised. Funding for higher education stopped. In fact, if you go to the US and say you meet a maybe say 55, 60 year old Nigerian professor or a Malawian professor or a Zambian professor or a Ghanaian professor and ask them, when did you come to the US? It coincides exactly with when funding to higher education was cut. Hmm. That devastated, completely devastated uh, education systems. So, so exactly, these policies have yeah. actual consequences. It's just not uh, uh, logical games that we are playing as academics, writing papers that nobody reads. These things tend to shape the way people think about it. And, and, yeah, and, uh, and now the World Bank has come back and said, oh, oops, we made a mistake. Uh, actually, you need to fund higher education. You know, look at you guys, you're not producing any science. Yeah, yeah? got to fund higher education. Yes. Martin Alvin, uh, what is your comment on that? Does it have, or in what way, perhaps, do these misunderstandings have real consequences? Well, I, some of the hype, like the, the what the Africa Rising thing, I, I just talked about that uh, with Nestle going in and then going out, uh, creating unnecessary fluctuations. Uh, it's also well known that if uh, expectations are too high or the, the rates are high while risk is high, you get this thing called adverse selection. So you get the wild and crazy investments being made, but not the safe and, and good ones in education and so forth. You get the wrong investment investors going there for the wrong reasons. Um, and so, th so that's the problem as well. I mean, there is also fundamental misunderstandings about how to, to even start talking and, and, and analyzing other societies. I mean, I talked about, what well, you, you talked about this uh, policy uh, uh, diagnosis, uh, one of the papers called Where Is All the Education Gone? And that yeah. was a you know, classic mistake of 
saying, look, there is no growth while there is investment in increases in education. Well, yeah. the problem was growth, not education. Yeah. It's a classic chicken and egg uh, type of uh, mistake here. Well, in this case, we know where what was the egg and what was the chicken. <laughs> uh, but um, so the growth was missing because of external conditions. That's no reasons to cut in a university. You wouldn't do that in your own country. Why would you do it in someone else's country? But then, not only that, we also have, like, I think, on a deeper, more conceptual level as well, done uh, ourselves a huge disfavor. Because at some point, what I call in the book, first, it was this first generation of growth literature, which wanted to see the as prove the association between bad growth and bad policy. But then that becomes a kind of a tautology. So the question became to try to explain why do some societies keep on picking bad policies? And so why do, what's the character flaw? Well, that is when we got, we changed from the getting the prices right paradigm to good governance paradigm. So that means that there's something wrong with the society. If they have bad leaders, they have bad public services, these states, needs to be avoided, reformed, and so forth like that. So then there was an association, not any longer between growth and policy, but between governance and income levels. So we wanted to start explaining why Norway is $30,000 per capita versus Tanzania is $1,000 per capita. And people looked at this and said, well, lo and behold, it turns out there's many different kind of languages in Tanzania and uh, you know, high ethnic fragmentation, whereas in Norway there is none. Um, well, based on their faulty um, 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 ethnic metric. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they did it that way or compared it to Japan and so forth. And then the, the policy implication was that if, if Tanzania would have been as homogeneous as Japan, it would have been four times richer, which is not very useful yeah. to know, <laughs> unless you can actually misunderstand the news, which there are researchers in California who suggested that maybe men, more states in sub-Saharan Africa should start dividing up according to divisions on ethnic lines. And that's a that's very useful policy advice, very dangerous <laughs> policy advice. And and but not only that, I think there's also this basic thing which Grieve talked about, it's so difficult as a Norwegian, and trust me, I know a Norwegian who has been through this personally, traveling to these countries and get rid of that thought in your head that ah, they're not doing it the way that we do. That's why. And, and so, and, and to get rid of that thought is the, 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 the first thing you need to do, and you have to get rid of it every morning you get up <laughs> to, to kind of like re remove it from your mental frame. Uh, but I, look, I see that I look around myself, there's not many people are that good at starting the day with a clean slate as, as I am. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that means that at the same time, we've miswritten not only the history of Zambia, we've also miswritten the history of Norway. So when we have this like measuring governance in the world, well, in William Easterly's papers, yeah. it's bad governance only exists in the low-income countries. So, on, you know, governance is by definition one or perfect in the norm countries, and everything else is a minus in the yeah. world, right? So that means that we obviously, Norwegians, know that we're rich because we're so good. So, you know, the only reason we didn't mess up the oil is because we have good governance. Yeah. Now, maybe we, you know, we all, I think we even write that history wrong. They should have been... We should very much more about luck, and we should very much more about bad governance down the road here right now in how they mess up the, the oil revenues and so forth. So we're, we're losing correct perspective on yeah. Zambia and yeah. what they do with their copper, but we also write false histories about how perfect Norway is and how perfect USA is as well. So we're doubly blinded from this. And <clears throat> so that was a pr pretty yeah. broad answer to a small question. But, uh, <laughs> 
anyhow. Well, we're it. painting a broad picture. Uh, is it anyone here who have any questions? So, yes, please. And please, if you can come up here and uh, use the mic. It would be great. Yeah, my name is Toby Mbamalo. I think uh, I find this discussion very interesting, and I agree with most of your conclusions, because uh, I've had a uh, debate with one of my friends this summer, and today we are not on talking time because I took the position that Africa actually is not rising, and he felt that it was wrong that we have witnessed a lot of development, especially in GDP. I come from Nigeria, and I can relate to most of the things you've said, especially the structural uh, adjustment in the 80s. I remember most of this uh, downward fall in Nigeria started after the what we call the structural adjustment program of the then military government of uh, Babangida. And if you look at Nigeria from the 60s, 70s, Nigeria was rated as a middle-class economy. Actually, they were classified the same level with Malaysia, Hong Kong, Singapore. This is middle-class economy. But immediately after the 70s and early 80s, the infrastructures have been decaying. And even though today, in 2014, Nigerian economy was rebased by the then Minister of Finance, Okonji Iwala, and we were told that Nigerian economy is the strongest and the biggest in Africa, stronger than that of South Africa. But Nigerians laugh at that because they said on paper <laughs> it was true. But in point of fact, in terms of infrastructure, what infrastructure do you have to back it up? When I, before I came to Norway, I came to Norway in 1992 to do my postgraduate degree at the University of Oslo. My background is as a psychologist. I also studied economics at the Norwegian School of Management. Before I came to Norway, at my place, we, have, um, we had um, pipe-bound water. Water, we had electricity. But today, that pipe-bound water, the structure, has decayed. When you build your house, you have to build your own well. Mm. That basic amenity is lacking in most homes. Any mm. Nigerian that builds house today have to construct their own well for you to get simple water. And yet, Nigeria is rising. When you build a house, you have to have your own uh, plant to mm. supply your own electricity. And yet, Nigeria is rising. Mm. So what I see is a rise in corruption. Before, in Africa and Nigeria, they talk about 10%. Today, they said the politicians take 90% and give 10%. So, but my question to you is, even though there are some problems, are there some independent variables? Grief, especially when you say that maybe the Western economies cannot transport their thought to Africa. But if you look at a country like Norway, Norway started exporting, producing oil in the 70s. Mm. Nigeria started in 1958. Norway was a very poor country before, one mm. of the poorest in Europe, as a matter of fact. Mm. But within a short time, because of good governance, they are now among the best, in fact, one of the best in the world. Mm. So what can we learn from some of these developing countries? Chinua Achebe, one of the foremost Nigerian authors, said the problem is leadership. So what can Africa, what can we do to change this leadership problem that has been an impediment 
to development in Africa. I think that's a... Thank you. So who of you would like to give a, give a shot? Thanks for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, I mean, th that's the one trillion dollar question. Yeah? I'm sure somebody's writing, oh, theses have been written about this. Uh, but so, like, so when, of course, so there's one way of thinking about it. Of course, there are things to learn from Norway. There are things to learn from everywhere. There are things to learn from history, right? And we get some of our lessons from history, from also looking at what other countries have done. But there's also this big cognitive, so this like logical fallacy or cognitive fallacy. There's a risk that you see you, you associate correlation with causation, right? So the, the story that Morton tells us about Norway, maybe Norway was lucky. It's quite possible that Norway was lucky. One of the biggest open questions today in, in terms of at this uh, stand to be corrected, but when I think about one of the biggest events in the world was the Industrial Revolution. We think it changed a lot of things. But who the hell knows how it started? There are a bunch of theories about it, right? Whatever, it could be what the Protestant ethic, I don't know, is one theory. It could be uh, the scientific revolution is another theory. Is, maybe there's just, I don't know, maybe the British will just have this Britishness about them that allowed, the, you know, this, this, you know, maybe it's the tea, I don't know, maybe it's... It's the high wages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> high wages. I mean, exactly. And with the high wages come. So, I mean, so it maybe it's just exactly. So, there's still this big open question, and people are still debating where the Industrial Revolution started. We have no idea where it started, when it started, and where it started in that time period, and where it started. Why this thing? We have no idea. We're just still guessing about it. Uh, so, I'm, my, my great my grandchildren, maybe my great grandchildren, I can take a wage on this. My great grandchildren will live in a better Zambia. That's for sure. And I think when they review what we were writing about why Zambia is poor, they'll have a laugh. Yeah, they'll just have a laugh. And so, wow, these guys were just talking about random stuff that's causing all this sort of uh, uh, mal malperformance in the economy. Yeah, so I, is, it, is it leadership? Perhaps it is leadership. And, and I think there is a leadership problem. Yeah, just as there's a leadership problem everywhere, most places. I think one of the, one of the things about China, which is completely striking, is that uh, in spite of quote-unquote corruption, or in spite of uh, nepotism, or what have you, China's done very well. And I think this is probably the same story with Japan when it was taking off. This is probably the same story with South Korea when it was taking off. I mean, there were, you know, uh, you could read stuff back then, and you see people were right, worrying about corruption. And leader, we've got a leadership problem in Singapore. We've got a leadership problem in Singapore, right? So, yeah, this is a very sort of very random response to your question. But I think the thing is very complex, yeah? Uh, so we had good leaders in the 60s and 70s. How why is it all of a sudden we had bad leaders? But but I agree that we should hold our leaders accountable. But I don't think that's going to be the magic bullet that um, that transforms us overnight into a Norway, right? So I think the problem is much more deeper. Yeah. I, think. I think the history of economic growth shows us very clearly that just in terms of achieving growth, good governance is not you know. Um, necessary, uh, nor, but I bet, it's not necessary, and it's for sure not sufficient. Mm. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. Mm. So it's not as if good governance is sufficient to bring about growth. And we should also look, you know, there can be no doubt whatsoever that it's not necessary either. Well, but whether that brings us to the types of societies we want, I think is a different kind of yeah, question. Exactly. And how, in a governance cannot be measured on a good or bad uh, type of thing as well. What matters is uh, who gets the growth, what types of growth, and, and so forth like that. Governance, the governance for, for whom. But I think 
I think it's a, it, it is, we should be aware of that kind of thing that we could look around at the world right now, we could see, you know, everyone knows that, you know, Norway has oil and good governance and uh, Nigeria has bad governance and oil and uh, one is poor and one is rich, but then the hard part is to figure out how Nigeria becomes Norway, people think. Uh, but that's not how it goes. So there's not, Nigeria and Norway is not like divided on a spectrum in which Karl Marx and others thought, you know, the Norway is the future mirror image of what Nigeria will become. Nigeria will have to find their own path. So therefore, that's what I'm thinking about, this distinguishing between is this compar comparative work might be useful and it might be useless. And if you drive this kind of comparisons too far, you end up in the useless category. So you need to think about, you know, when are comparisons good? Mm -hmm. And that are the ones that are reciprocal, mm -hmm. in which both Nigeria and Norway are allowed to be deviations, not only Nigeria. And, and, and the ones that are bad are the subtractive ones, where you yeah. think that somehow Nigeria will become Norway. And it won't. It might be com become a rich place with good governance, but it will never be Norway, mm -hmm. unfortunately. <laughs> An interesting question is uh, sort of this studying deviations is, uh, why don't Norwegians dance as well as Nigerians? We should be asking that uh, research yeah, question. You see it very often. <laughs> yes, see it very often happening. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back to that later. Uh, <laughs> yes, there's one more question over here. And if there's anyone else, please raise your hand and I'll take it down. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jo Hellevalle. I'm a professor in development studies here in Norway, um, in Oslo. And, uh, uh, I'm an anthropologist, but I'm also heading a project that looks at the relationship between uh, new media and change in Africa. So what you're talking about, because I'm an anthropologist, is music to my ears. <laughs> but uh, uh, I also have some knowledge in economics. And what I'm thinking of when you're talking is that uh, you're to me, you're talking about two things. One is the, the, the tools of economics as, as a discipline, and the other one is about Africa. And um, you, both of you have repeatedly pointed out the complexity, the, contextual, the importance of context, the specificity of, of, uh, of uh, each country and each development. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, aren't uh, your arguments for the uh, complexness and, and, uh, and the specificity uh, uh, an argument against the classical economic way of reasoning, which is model-based, as far as I can understand? You apply a model, you apply a model on a specific country, and you, you see if it fits or not. But you as you said, Grieve, that you have to really make it simple. You have to shred away a lot of the things. So is, uh, to be provocative, is economics the right discipline to study economy in Africa? <laughs> so that's one question. And the other one is uh, related to this is, and, uh, is that it seems to me I, I don't feel I have gotten a, a, a proper <laughs> answer, is Africa rising? And it, I guess it is in what you're saying. It's so complex, so you can't give a simple answer. And you were talking, Grieve, about uh, uh, the research questions are very important. So I was wondering, shouldn't the research question be something like, in what ways, in what areas, with what consequences 
is Africa rising? And not as a simple uh, general question. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have, uh, I've noted at least three more questions. So, but please answer that one and uh, yeah, but yeah. relatively brief, but yeah. Relatively brief. <laughs> no, I, when, you know, so we come to that point in when where the economists have made themselves uh, useless mm. in the sense that they, their conclusions kind of beg for them, them okay, so your work stops here. Because if they figure out that history matters, then call in the historians. If they figure out that institutions have matters, then you know, bring in uh, anthropologists and political scientists. I mean, when Douglas North got his Nobel Prize in economics in the mid-1990s, there was a journalist uh, who stuck his, the microphone on, under his nose and uh, you know, said, do you have any policy advice for Russia? And this was the middle 1990s. Mm. Russia was falling apart and said, get a new history, because that's, so, <laughs> that's what his work told him, that uh, Russia had the wrong type of history. <laughs> so, but, but if we are serious about it, I mean, I'm, I'm not a stranger to the idea that it is institutions that matter, that governance in some way matters in Kenya. Then clearly, if, then we need someone who really understands why and how land is divided as it is uh, in, in the Kenyan highlands and what is the history behind that if you're gonna devise governance for that. So I think, yes, you're right. I think that we're beginning, if we em embrace this complexity, then we need to, 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 uh, to also embrace other types of knowledge. The problem is that we have currently quite strict hierarchies about what is good knowledge and what is not. The econo economist type of good knowledge is good knowledge, particularly in the doors of the World Bank and the IMF. Mm -hmm and particularly Western economics, if you like, or quantitative-based economics and, and the econometric and so forth. The more sophisticated it is, the better. Economists are interested in getting very precise answers to the wrong questions, but they're still very precise and therefore very attractive for, for policymakers. Say, look how correct these answers is. Um, but uh, so I, I think that's a, a real challenge. Then you asked again whether Africa is rising or not. Uh, I think there is no doubt whatsoever as I've written many places, there are more goods and services entering and leaving ports and countries in Sub-Saharan Africa now than there were 10 and 20 years ago. That's not the research question. We know that. Well, what we need to know is how does that relate to all the stuff we don't know? So what happens between... We, we know how Uganda trades with the West through Kenya, but we don't know how it trades with Sudan, with Rwanda, but because we don't monitor that and so forth. We know what happens to the Nigerian petroleum economy, but we have no idea what is the linkages with the water supply and the informal economy and food production. Uh, and so that's, we, we need to focus on the things that we don't know about this. Uh, yes, growth is recurring and it will continue to do so. That's why we need to ex study uh, growth and decline more closely and uh, not to just look at the big, big hype and the big headline. Mm. I mean, no, just very, I, I can't add anything to him. Morton has covered it quite right. The only thing I wanted to say to Professor Joe there is I, I studied many years to get a PhD in economics, and now you tell me <laughs> I, should, uh, I should just be out of the game. Oh, man. <laughs> but but I, I mean, uh, Morton covered everything. Okay, so please, uh, there was someone, yes, in a shirt and a hat. Thank you. My name is uh, Kasson. I'm from Ethiopia. I've lived in Norway for the six years. Uh, I want to say something because uh, uh, coming one person from uh, an African country, staying in Norway, and I don't know how long it took you to stand on your feet where you lived now, from the, uh, where you came from. 
and a country or a continent been colonized for more than 50 years, which never been independent. Mm -hmm. And it, it took only some years to start standing on their foot now. Yeah. And my, 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 my advice for any African is, I don't think this presentation should uh, uh, make you frustrated from investing or going back to your country because uh, the African norm nowadays is Africa is just for Africans. They will uh, stand and develop by their own people. If any African here is expecting for West country to make it develop, then it, it, it will be 10%, 1% right, but not, not all. So expect Syria or Afghanistan, which has been uh, devastated and then uh, destroyed by the Western influence and other political issues, how long does it take for them to stand on their feet and develop and feed their own people? Expect Syria, Iraq, whatever. So when I come to Africa, a country who has been colonized for 50 years, where their economy is still under the dominance of Europeans, expect, uh, I mean, example, coffee by Swedish, by Norwegian, and a full farmer in, in, in Sidamo, Ethiopia, is getting less than one dollar a year, I mean, a month, or a day, whatever, it's just very, very low. And you know it, everyone knows it. My question is, you are telling us just the drawbacks, the negatives, and the stereotypes that we always hear from the big medias. What is your strategy? I mean, what are the uh, uh, research models done for the Africans? Do you have any model which you can present us, or, or are you here just to present this is wrong and this is hopeless, whatever? Is there any, since you have done your PhD, what is your model? What have you learned from, I don't know where you're living, in the UK? What have you learned to benefit Africa? I've been here six years. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to stand on my feet, but I always dream to do something for my own country. That's my job. I came for to study. Um, I, I don't want to stuck here, and then uh, you understand what I mean. Of so, course. do you have any strategy or models that you took from the West mm -hmm. to take it back and give for the Africans, banks or economists or the governments, or are we just here blaming the corruption, whatever, whatever? So, I just want to know: Do you have any models that you can provide for the Africans? economy to grow. Thank you so much. Oh, that's for me. Before he answers, maybe my question somehow supplies to that. Okay. Uh, my, yeah. name is, my name is Lemma Desta. I am also Ethiopian, happen to be. Oh. Uh, 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 with a background, uh, I'm a theologian, so my concern is from the background of who I am. Uh, I, I wish uh, in that picture there was a third article in which there is an, a picture of African continent, and the, the, the title says the sinned against continent. So my, my, my idea is Africa is the sinned against continent. Sinned against by its own leaders, sinned against by the outsiders. And the traditional way of looking at Africa is either Afro-pessimism or Afro-optimism. Yeah. So can we then think of an Afro-realism in which the problems of economics, which you can do it better than I, even I don't understand. Uh, one, one concern I have is, 
can we draw onto the, the problems of education whereby our education is still remains a sort of colonial in its content uh, and uh, even in its method, which I guess is also a problem with the sciences itself. Uh, the idea is how can we bring on the resources? Uh, I've been fascinated by the idea of George Aiti in his uh, book about Africa Unchained and the proposal to sort of base, start with the African way of doing economics from a village life. Is there a way to go using the African resources and build an African way of measuring things so that when we come to meet the world that we will not be measured by somebody else's, by the Swedish uh, product, but rather we also bring our own and say, well, Norway is good in this, Norway is weak in dancing, and Africa is better in dancing. So are we able to build up the, the positive side of uh, Afro-realism in that sense? And what would you say? My question is more to you. And I'm, I'm very... As an African, I'm very indebted to, to, to the, the work you have done, and thank you for lifting up the, the concern, Morton. And this was a, a good Norwegian behavior that you have <laughs> lifted up the, the, the needy ones. Thank you. Well, so I guess that was first to, to you, Grieve. Uh, two questions pointing to, well, uh, now we've been addressing, um, uh, make pro making this, uh, looking at the problems with uh, statistics and so on. but. What are the solutions or any suggestions? Of, yeah. Okay, so uh, since, since I'm an economist and I like to simplify stuff, I'll say, so is it, I'll write a paper that says Ethiopians ask the hardest questions. Yeah? <laughs> and then I'll use these two guys as their data points. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, so, so full disclosure, I did my PhD on, on the continent. So I was at the University of Cape Town. So, yeah, so I... Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, I mean, the question of what can we do to develop is obviously a very difficult question because, like, I mean, we actually, we think we know a lot about the world, but actually we don't know as much as we should. There's still a lot of open questions, right? So if you go, for instance, if you go, uh, um, I think the, the South Korean economist, Haju Chang, the heterodox economist, has written about the U.S. If you go to the U.S. in the 19th century, I mean, we... The movie depictions of what life was like in the U.S. in the 19th century. It was a terrible place to be. I mean, uh, if you knew the judge, you could easily get off. The poor were, were on the wrong end of the stick. It was a terrible place to be. But lo and behold, the U.S. was rising. And, and it's now an industrial giant, right? Uh, so the point is to say it's, it's, very, it's very complex. But we can, we can try some things based on what we see in history. There are some things we can try. One of the things that I'm very passionate about, so this is probably a bias, is I think industrialization is a way to go about it. Because when you industrialize, you sort of in some ways insulate yourself against these commodity price swings, which we think really explain why growth is always recurring in Africa. Right? So you kind of insulate yourself against these price swings. You can now produce manufactured goods manufactured goods, the price of manufactured goods doesn't swing as much as the price of primary commodities does. You can insulate against yourself against that. You can provide jobs, meaningful jobs, right? So when people begin to make stuff, uh, their, their wages rise because they become more productive. They're not, no longer just working with a hole in the countryside somewhere. They're actually working with their hands and making something. You can, you can then create jobs. Um, that's, that's one. So I, I have a bias towards industrialization, and I think... Uh, it seems to me now the discourse on the continent is moving towards industrialization. So I see now the new African Development Bank president, Dr. 
uh, Adeshina is passionate about industrializing and he's hired as a chief economist, a guy who used to work at, uh, uh, at the United Nations Industrial Development Organization, Dr. Celestine Monga, who's also passionate about industrialization. So I think they sort of, hopefully, they'll be moving that. I think that's bias. I think we need to industrialize in some ways. That's my bias. And uh, he's, he's right also about the one thing that economists are not very good at doing is sort of putting everything together, right? So the story about neocolonialism, which is a very sort of very topical thing in, in the humanities and elsewhere doesn't feature so much in economics. I mean, so for instance, there was a famous paper by uh, William Easterly Nan and others that showed that, for instance, in Ghana, between 1960 and 1990, the CIA was involved for a great part of the time. From 90% of the time, the CIA was involved somewhere uh, pulling numbers and pressing numbers and you know and, and and we know this from history I mean you look at the Congo that is the story of the Congo you look at Ghana that's the story of Ghana I mean pick any African country during the Cold War Africa was a turf in which these these sort of these sort of uh, big battles were being fought the elephants were fighting and the, the African grass suffered right uh, but you don't see this being this as a big research field in economics nobody ever tries to say Let's try to really quantify the impact on underdevelopment of being a playground for the Cold War. Nobody ever does that. So we have this problem in economics where, I don't know, is it ideological, is it deliberate, or is it just the way we are trained? We can't really put everything together. Uh, so, I mean, so that, that's one way of looking at it. So, I mean, I think that's sort of part of the problem. Uh, and then the, the other gentleman asked a question about, uh, again, this sort of, is there an African economics? Right, so is there really an African way of economics? So, I look. I, I what, what I think is the issue there is we should be able to contextualize the way we think about economics to our realities. For instance, informality is a big thing on the continent. Right, most of us. If you, uh, when I go back and work home, I I'm a civil servant by day. Uh, by night time, I have a small shop. I mean, people do have this kind of like double lives. In fact, this is a direct consequence of structural adjustment that with retrenchments, people had to make a living, right? So Zambians in the 90s all of a sudden began to travel to South Africa to buy goods and then come and sell them uh, sort of uh, in the country. So, but economics as it is today doesn't understand informality in the African world. Things. They think informality is an aberration, right? So you always hear stories about, we hope to see as Africa grows, we should see the informal sector shrinking. A priori, I don't know why it should shrink. It's not very clear to me at least why it should shrink, right? So, so the issue there is then, can we then have, using economic tools, not just the orthodox one, but using history, using heterodox methods, using many other types of economics, can we then try to understand what, infor what, what, what informality is in Africa and what it means for Africa's growth? This kind of thing. So I think there's this issue about, I mean, we shouldn't really fight for force and that there should be an African economics. I think there's an economics. There's bad economics, awful economics, terrible economics. There's also good economics. And there are good economists doing really good work, and there are bad economists really doing really bad work. I think the issue is just we have to be very discerning. And uh, yeah, and that, I, I think also, yeah, in some ways, really owning the policy dialogue. I mean, we really need to be in the rooms where those discussions are being had, right? That's the kind of, I think that's where but they were very difficult questions. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there was one last uh, question that I saw, and then we need to we need to wind up there. And that's the gentleman with the check trick. Uh, hi, my name is Andreas Norman. Um, I would like to just go back to earlier when you were talking together, and 
I felt you were kind of having a laugh at how uh, people were evaluating policies or development programs and like, yeah, they wanted to fund, cut funding in higher education because they thought primary education was giving a better development. Um, but as I see it, we need to uh, evaluate uh, policies. We need to see what works and how, but apparently sometimes it's not done in a good way. So I was wondering, how can we do it differently? How, is it done differently now? Is it, can you comment on that? You want to start? Yeah. Um, it's done differently, but not better. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, uh, evaluation is important. Knowledge is important. Um, that's what I, why I do what I do as well. Um, I'm not looking, by the way, if someone thinks that I'm going to come around with solutions, that's not my role in society. I only find problems. <laughs> uh, and I instruct my PhD students as well. They're, uh, they're banished from my room if they come up with solutions. Only problems. <laughs> only problems. Paradoxes might pass, but preferably problems. Uh, so, and you should always worry about someone says, I have the solution. Um, unless he, you know, he screams Eureka and runs naked out of a bathroom mm -hmm. or something. He probably doesn't got it right. Yeah. But, but um, so what was the question again? <laughs> no, I know. Uh, uh, the uh, evaluation. Yeah. Uh, so I think that it was a classic case of not knowing what was the structural variable and which was the conjunctural one. So they looked at primary uh, spending in tertiary education, that means universities, and they looked at low uh, GDP growth rates, and then they thought there was a mismatch there. Um, then that showed, you know, economists would, that paper would not be published now. So because that would not pass anymore. It's not uh, a passable causal mechanism. Uh, it's not a clear cut enough identification mm -hmm. strategy. Yet that brings us into different kind of problems and different kinds of knowledge. So today, we have very, very strict evaluation ways in which you do, for instance, randomized evaluations, which means that you would you just give tertiary education to some people and not to others, which is very difficult and expensive to do. And then you would see whether they do better and so forth. Maybe you could do it. Maybe you can get like a, according to the state of the art, the golden way of doing in medicine type of knowledge into this on the individual level, but you couldn't do it to countries. You couldn't say, Zambia, you're not getting any university education for a decade, and then we'll compare you to uh, Tanzania, who will be getting uh, this kind of education. And then you could do semi-natural experiments, but we don't have that clear-cut kind of things in the world. The real world is messy, so that means evaluation is gonna be messy. Knowledge is gonna be fragile, and that means why that's exactly why we look for problems. That's why we don't look for solutions. No, but that means that you have to be modest and humble, yeah. particularly if you're studying a continent from long distance. It is possible now to, to be an expert in the uh, costs of civil war and studying using, writing a paper, whole thesis, a PhD thesis on just downloading data from the World Bank one place and civil wars in Sweden because that's who maintained that database and then figure out the exact cost of civil war without actually you know, studying it different ways. So that's, I mean, it is messy, it's difficult to get stuff. Precision com comes at a cost usually, and that's worth worrying about. Greer, do you have a final, uh, final comment to fill in? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just to say, the, the thing about economics and economists is, when I sort of, as a student, as I was studying it, I mean, they're always fads, right? So when I wrote my PhD dissertation, the big thing then was 
uh, at least it was at the third, we were at, I came in at the end of the third almost. The big third there was what is called instrumental variables techniques mm. of isolating causality. So, so how do we prove that X caused Y? So there was this, uh, there was this uh, thing that you, you, you look for a variable, you look for another variable Z or Z that doesn't, has no relationship to Y, but it has a relationship to X, the, the variable of interest. And then you can use this variable Z to sort of like uh, independently vary the, the X and then you see what happens to Y. So you've sort of then told a causal story using this instrumental variable, the variable Z. This thing is no longer fashionable. If you write a paper today where you're talking about instrumental variables regression, it'll likely not get published. But five, six, seven, eight years ago, it was a state of the art. And, and I'm sure some of that found its way into policy. Right now, there's a big fad. The new fad, like Morton has told us, is the gold standard, as it is called, is randomized control trials. You randomize, uh, uh, you randomize village. You give some intervention to village A. You don't give the intervention to village B. And then it looks simple, right? Just simply randomize and then see what happens afterwards. And you can tell a story about whether the intervention worked or not. Right? But I see now the, the crit criticisms of randomized control trials that are popping up. So in, again, it will become difficult to publish a paper with randomized control trials, and then you move on to the next fad. So that's, that's the problem that we have uh, with economics. Is, I mean, it's really academics having logical, fun exercise games, as, as they would in math, in pure mathematics. A couple of obscure guys we've never heard of are probably working on a proof for, uh, for maybe the Poincare's conjecture, and they might come up with a proof of it, but it will never show up in policy. They're just having fun, right? Logical games, oh, I found a proof, I didn't find a proof. And economists are also having these sort of logical games, with the exception that the logical games have real-life impact on people's lives. They real shape the way we think about societies. And I think, like Morton is saying, there has to be an, uh, an exercise in humility. Uh, uh, economists tend not to be very humble people. Uh, they tend to speak with very deep voices and very confident about uh, what, what works or not. I mean, a really great, great essay, that one that I always try to revisit every now and then is... Um, uh, Frederick von Hayek uh, won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1976 or 77, I forget, I've forgotten when. But he, his Nobel lecture was called The Pretense of Knowledge, which is this obsession. So the story is really about measurement, which he called scientism. This obsession to measure everything and to, I know, not to measure everything, to think our knowledge can only come from those things that we can measure, right? So economics are always talking about Where's, where's the data? Tell me, show me the data. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? And by which, by that they mean, where is the data? Mm. Right? So they think, you know, those things that we can, uh, you can only tell a story about something if you've measured it. If you haven't measured it, you're really just hand-waving and you're not worth talking to. So people will tell me, if I, if I, if I sent a paper right now to the American Economic Review and I was just telling a story, they wouldn't publish it. They'll throw it right in the dustbin. They want data there. But remember, this obsession with measurement is really, to go back to the old expression, we're really looking for the keys underneath the lamppost. That's all we are doing, right? There's a whole vast of vastness of darkness where the keys could, could be, and we're just using this one way of, uh, of thinking about it, and that's, it's pretty much problematic. And it's, uh, and it's tough. If you're a PhD student, to get your PhD, you have to do these econometric things. Yeah, yeah but incredibly limiting. Yeah, so it's a long-winded way. That's a long-winded rant, but <laughs> rant ended. <laughs> Rant ended, and that's yeah. also the also this uh, this talk ended. Thank you so much for coming here, everyone. Uh, and uh, I will urge everyone to check out Norwegian Council for Af Africa's Facebook page and web page for next year's Africa Now uh, seminars. So thank you so much.